Sam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here and uh, yeah, big fan, big fan. I listened to it, I was familiar with it. I always see it on LinkedIn, so excited to be here. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, I met you because you're working at Koto Academy. Uh, you're the marketing director. Yeah, yeah. So wearing many hats, but yeah, I guess my title would be like marketing director. That's really cool because um, I think, you know, a lot of people, they want to learn Japanese. Uh, they're very interested, like, and I'm sure during the pandemic, there are a lot of people who were really interested in learning Japanese from outside of Japan who uh, really haven't, you know, been uh, coming in. So I'm, I'm really curious about like, what is your journey coming into Japan, learning Japanese and then getting interested and getting involved in uh, the you know, sort of Japanese language learning space? Yeah, so you'd have to go back a long, long time to <laughs> probably like maybe 1998 or so. Um, my, my older brother, when he was in high school, he was a big otaku. And there's mm -hmm. about a seven, seven year age gap between us. So like he, I would just kind of like sit at his feet watching like Akira or like really age inappropriate stuff, <laughs> you know, like um, different anime OVAs and um, just grow, growing up around that. And um, yeah, but I started playing like Dance Dance Revolution, if you're familiar with that. I am familiar with that. Yeah, we had that when I was a kid as well. Yeah, yeah. So totally, you know, like American kid, like at that time, I think like Sony, PlayStation and Japanese video games were really kind of popular. So mm -hmm. I wasn't really into anime, but I had an affinity for like Japanese culture. And so I would kind of like tag along with him to go to like a Japanese culture club or anime club at the local community center. And through that, I kind of developed a, a fascination with Japanese culture, but I didn't really act on it or do anything with it. And actually in senior year of college, I went on a exchange semester to China. So wow. lived in China and actually started learning Chinese first before I started trying to learn Japanese. But when I was like 14 or so, I had a Japanese for dummies book and I tried to do like the Romaji and kind of learn through that. But it never really connected because I didn't have anyone to talk with. Um, when I moved to China and started learning Chinese, that was really amazing because you had that aha moment of like, oh, I'm saying something in another language and people are understanding me. And, you know, like we're actually having a conversation. And that was really like the light bulb for me. Um, and then, yeah, so long story short, um, I met my now wife in uh, Shanghai and she uh, was from Hong Kong. And so we kind of moved back to Hong Kong for a year, decided it wasn't really for us. And then for some reason, I don't know what it really was, but I was just inspired, like, let's move to Japan. Let's go to Japan. And so, um, yeah, so went to uh, Tokyo. I basically like messaged a bunch of people on LinkedIn being like, oh, I'm coming to Japan. Do you, can you sponsor my visa? Give me a job, give me a job, give me a job. <laughs> and, um, uh, I connected with uh, Peter Galante, who's the owner, uh, founder of uh, Japanese Pod 101. And he was basically like, well, you can come out here. We don't, can't guarantee anything, but, you know, like come out and we'll talk to you basically. And so kind of like, yeah, we, we came on a temporary visa and just like tried to figure out um, things from there. And then, yeah, so he, he gave me my first job in Japan. And then um, that's kind of what started. So like at that point we were living in Hong Kong, but we knew that we were going to Japan. And so we started taking classes at a Japanese uh, language center in Hong Kong before mm -hmm. we moved to, to Tokyo. 
So. Uh, yeah, that's really fantastic. Actually, we had Peter Galante on the podcast maybe about a year ago or something, and uh, and you know we've been friends for a long time. And uh, yeah, his uh, his approach, I think, um, he he's very fluent in Japanese, and I've you know gone places with him and listened to him speak in Japanese. My Japanese is kind of, I would say, it's that sort of. Um, a uh, conversational level where I can communicate about just about anything, but it's just below sort of business level where you need to be a little bit more confident in the way that you speak. You need to use like different kinds of words, different um, sentence structures and things like that. And um, so, yeah, I, I was really interested in Japanese pod 101 as well at the time, because I, I was thinking, how can I learn Japanese to a sort of higher level? I want to get to a, a sort of business level and I started I started learning that maybe maybe around like five years ago or something um so what happened there did you actually end up getting the job at Japanese pod 101 like uh, did you because I know now you're at Koto Academy so uh yeah how did that work out yeah yeah so he hired me and yeah like you I was using Japanese pod as a learning resource before I came um and so it's kind of like uh, I don't know what the comparison would be, but it's like seeing a celebrity or something. It's like, oh, I know this person, you know, it's like mm. you listen to them enough, you get the, the cadence of their voice. And it's kind of like, I know you, but you don't know me. So it's kind of that weird thing. Yeah. So he, he um, Peter hired me as a marketing executive um, and then, um, yeah, I worked there for about a year um, and I wasn't technically fired, but they did not choose to renew my contract. And totally deserved it, by the way. Like, 100%. oh, okay. <laughs> Why? What did you? What did you do? What was the reason behind that? I just, I was young. I was like, I think, how old was I then? I think I was like 24, 25. and you know, I hadn't done anything to warrant the sort of ego that I had. Um, but I was basically like, I know how to market this company better than anyone, and you know, I, I was, um, you know spending a lot of time belly aching and complaining um and not not spending that time doing work <laughs> mm. so, so that's that's kind of how that worked out but um but yeah yeah so totally deserved it um and it was a great lesson for me too in terms of like humility like who signs the checks you know <laughs> the time to shut up and do your job you know and yeah so yeah, so so that was a great learning experience. And, you know, it was a huge blessing, too, because, like, it, it got me to Kodo, um, which I've been at Kodo for, like, five years. In the interim, um, I worked at a Japanese consulting company that was helping small to medium companies expand overseas and also, mm -hmm. like, foreign companies come into Japan. So, like, yeah, you were saying with the uh, um, business-level Japanese, I was, like, the only foreigner in an office where... My Japanese was definitely not good enough to be there, but I was there. <laughs> you got to figure it out. Um, yeah, I think that's the way it works a lot of the time is that you you kind of take a leap of faith in a way and you you go into something that maybe you're not quite good enough for. Um, I'm sure you've maybe you've heard of uh, I forgot the name of the person who um, did the TED talk about it, but she said uh, um, uh, she's the one who did the the thing about the big arms that it, it supposedly has a sort of neurological feedback loop. That um, if you, before you go into an interview, before you do something where you've got to be like up on stage or something like that, you um, kind of stand with like a wide stance or something and it creates this neurological feedback loop of uh, sort of positive emotion like, you know, I belong here, I'm, I'm big, I'm strong or something. And um, I think she, she said something um, towards the end of her podcast, that I think or towards the end of her TED talk, there was something like fake it till you become it. 
not fake it till you make it, fake it till you become it. Um, mm -hmm. Because the whole point of it is like, you you jump into something that you're not quite ready for, but you could be, you know, you just need a little bit, you need a little bit more of a kick or you need a little bit more work. So, um, yeah, and I think it's great that you, you know, after um, losing your job or like not having a contract renewed at uh, uh, JPod 101, that you actually took the time to reflect on that and think, oh, actually, like, I maybe I deserved this. There was a, you know, a good a good reason for them to not renew my contract. And that that's something that you can learn from. Yeah, yeah, total, total learning experience. And um, yeah, it was funny because the company that I worked for afterwards was right up the street from Japanese Pod 101 in Akasaka. So I'd run into Peter on the street <laughs> like from time to time, or I'd see him walking down the street and I'm like, oh, God, you know, I've got to put my head down and walk the other direction. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, yeah, I think, um, you know, not, you, not everyone's uh, Indian, not everyone's a chief, and not everyone is, you know, ready to handle certain responsibilities. But yeah, I think, yeah, that was one of the best experiences for me because it taught me, uh, you know, uh, you're not the king of the world, basically. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so how was your Japanese language learning experience then? Because you, you said that you learned, uh, you know, you learned some Japanese, I guess, from from uh, being interested in Japanese culture when you were young, but then you went to China first. And I guess you learned Chinese before you learned Japanese, right? So I'm sure that actually helped because a lot of Chinese speakers can learn Japanese more quickly because they can at least understand the kanji and they can understand some of the readings will be the same, like the uh, onyomi readings of uh, things are the same often as the Chinese. Um, how, how was it learning Japanese for you? Did you find it really easy after that experience or uh, like, was it a struggle? Yeah, yeah, so yeah, so, so Chinese as a language is really similar in grammar to English. Um, mm -hmm. So I think the trickiest thing with Chinese is the pronunciation. So it has a tonal kind of pronunciation. In Japanese, you've got a pitch accent um, kind of system, but it's not to the level of the tonal system in Chinese. Mm -hmm. So like Chinese has like four distinct tones and the syllabary is like the same. So you can say the same word, but if you have different intonation, it means you know four different things or whatever. In Japanese, you can get by with having kind of a you know rough pronunciation. Most native speakers are going to be able to understand you regardless of whether or not your pitch accent is off or on. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, like my Japanese is not perfect either. And I think um, in terms of like the overlap between kanji being helpful um, somewhat, but yeah, the, the grammar system in Japanese is uh, totally, you know, like opposite, right? So it's like, you yeah. have to train yourself to think backwards. It's like, okay, you know, let me de deconstruct the sentence and think backwards through the sentence. And then that's mm -hmm. Japanese. So, so um, training your brain to instantly recognize that kind of like backwards thought pattern, that was the challenging thing. And another thing that, um, it's frustrating because like as an American, I think culturally, we always want to infer what's next before mm -hmm. it gets there. And with Japanese, you have to wait until the very end of the sentence, right? I hadn't thought of that, like that because the because the uh, you know, for the people who are listening who aren't sure of uh, what we're talking about, that uh, in English, you have um, subject, verb, object, right? So like I picked up the bottle or something. But in Japanese, you say the verb at the end. So I'd say I bottle picked up. Um, and that, I think that 
uh, yeah, like you said, that structure means you're not really able to predict necessarily what's happening next unless it's uh, really clear in context. So yeah, that does make it a really different uh, sort of learning experience. Yeah, yeah. And then when you're speaking with native speakers who their default is that very patient kind of like wait until all like 100% is in, you get easily frustrated because you're going, come on, man, I'm giving you I'm giving you 80%. Just <laughs> walk with me the last 20%. And they're just like, none to, none to, you know, like, yeah. you know, what are you saying? Oh, no, she don't know, you know, so, um, so, so I think that was the biggest hurdle is like um, developing that patience to go, okay, um, because learning Chinese, uh, I had a much easier experience because you can kind of interpolate it because the, the grammar is so similar. So you, you can go out and you can just like output learning, like, okay, I'm going to put stuff out and then they'll give me the corrective feedback. And with Japanese, you kind of have to learn the patterns first before you go out and you do that sort of output uh, mm. system. Like, uh, it's interesting that you say that because I've one of the things that I noticed is that I would find, you know, after years of living in Japan, there would be times when I would say something and somebody would say like, oh, that's not that's not the right way to say that. But, you know, someone maybe someone close to me or like a friend or, or something like that would say, oh, that's not the right way to say that. And I'm like, I've been saying this for like four years and no one's ever corrected me and said, like, <laughs> that's wrong. You've got the wrong Japanese or we wouldn't use that word or something like that. And I would always be like, why wouldn't anyone tell me, <laughs> you know? And um, I'm curious if uh, if the learning experience for you for learning Japanese compared to Chinese was maybe like slower or like more labored because of sort of cultural differences in Japan of like not correcting people or like, you know, being a little bit softer, being a little bit, uh, I guess, uh, I, kinder in a way that's like, they don't want to sort of embarrass you, but at the same time, it's like not helpful. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the risk aversion against not creating any sort of conflict by correcting someone um, is really frustrating. So you have to find someone who's collaborative with you and you can say, hey, I need you to correct me. Please always correct me. And if mm -hmm. you can get their buy-in with that, or if it's in the right time and place for it. So if you join like a language exchange event, um, you know, then I think they're a little bit more open, but just in, in normal conversation, yeah, you kind of have to clear the air with that issue and tell them like, please correct me if I'm doing something wrong. Cause otherwise they just, yeah, they'll omit, they won't do it or they'll respond. They'll go, okay, I know what you said and they'll respond, but they won't fix the, the underlying issue. And so, yeah, for right. me personally, yeah, it, it was, um, it took longer in that, in that respect. Cause yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah not a very you know patient person when it comes to that <laughs> I, want it, I want it now want it now yeah uh, what are some of the biggest mistakes that people make when trying to learn japanese yeah that's a great question i think the biggest thing that i've noticed is the expectation management of how quickly they're going to progress versus like what they're actually doing so a lot of people they'll say okay i want to pass in one you know within like a year or something like that right and it's like, um, well, the N1 is the JLPT or the Japanese language proficiency test. And N1 is kind of like the highest level of that test for anyone who's unaware. Um, and so that's kind of like the gold standard of like, oh, my Japanese is like business fluent um, or like fully fluent. 
but um, that test is a multiple choice test and it's um, like a four answer test. So you have a 25% chance of blindly guessing all the answers right on the test um, because it doesn't actually track your, um, your speech output. Um, so, so yeah, what, what ends up happening is, is you have all of this enthusiasm and you go in and you go, okay, after a year, I'm going to be able to watch anime with no subtitles and I'm going to pass the N1 and da, 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 da. And what ends up happening is, um, people don't see, they can't, they can't see market progress. And so they're going, they're like, I haven't achieved a hundred percent and they get demotivated. And so I think self-motivation is the number one thing because Japanese is like climbing a mountain, but you have to scale the mountain from every single side. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think I had the, uh, kind of same uh, issue uh, was that learning Japanese was really hard and I was also I was living in the countryside when I first moved to Japan so I was able to kind of speak more with people who wouldn't give me that sort of uh, you know nod and, and agree kind of thing like I think a lot of my friends where I, when I was living in the countryside would correct me and they would push me but then when you go somewhere like Tokyo they just don't have the time for it you know and um, I think also uh, that expectation of being able to learn quickly, um, maybe for other languages, I think that's fine. You know, like people learning Spanish and stuff. Like I think my, my sister moved to Switzerland for a year to, to be an au pair, which is like a, a childcare uh, person. And, um, she learned French and she can, she can understand French pretty well. And, and, uh, she still speaks French reasonably well. And, uh, I was in Japan for 10 years and, you know, people always assume like, oh yeah, your Japanese must be, you know, perfect by now. And it's like, well, actually Japanese is just a much, much harder language. And there's, there is that sort of demotivating slump that, you know, I definitely got into after moving to Tokyo where I was just like, you know, I've been at this for years now and it's, uh, it's not coming easily to me. And it wasn't until, you know, I, I started actually taking my business Japanese learning seriously that I started to pick up a few, you know, useful phrases and stuff. So, um, uh, so what do you think? Do you think that uh, in-person classes are the best way to do that? Or do you think there are ways that people can sort of self-motivate and then learn online and use all kinds of uh, online tools? Or do, is it still better to go into the classroom? Hi everyone, I hope you're enjoying the conversation. And I just want to take a quick moment to mention that this podcast is only possible because of the support of jobsinjapan.com. So next time you're looking for a job, check out jobsinjapan.com. There are tons of jobs on there, not only in English teaching, but also software engineering, hospitality, marketing, and consulting among many others. Most of the jobs on the board do not require any specific level of Japanese and you can get started in minutes. So next time you're looking for a job, check out jobsinjapan.com and let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, I think it, it depends what your objective is with the language. If your objective is, okay, I want to be able to read documents, legal documents in Japanese, then your speaking really doesn't need to be that great. Um, so you would want to focus on just learning kanji. And so you could do that in a vacuum, right? If you just want to read and be able to comprehend and understand, you can do that in a vacuum. Um, so you can, you know, just self-study with Anki or any sort of flashcard application. But if, if you want to be able to speak, you will need to, to output and um, live in the language contextually. I think with Japanese, the thing is, you know, um, like you, you mentioned French, with French, you can learn a scaffolding phrase. And what I mean by that is just a phrase that's going to teach you more language. So you can ask people, how do I say this in French or something? Or how do I say this in Japanese? 
you can learn that in Japanese, but the problem is in Japanese, there's like five different um, contextual uh, chunking things that you'll need to learn um, depending on the situation. So if you're talking to your boss, you're going to be using a different set phrase than if you're talking to your, you know, um, employee, your subordinate. So, um, you know, there isn't that difference in other languages. So I would say in terms of classroom, it's really important because the teacher is going to be able to tell you and explain to you why and when you need to use the different language. And so it'll save you time uh, over stumbling through it and hoping that somebody corrects you and says, hey, you shouldn't be using it in this situation because X, Y, Z. So, so having a teacher in that context is really helpful because they can kind of um, take out that trial and error period. You can learn from other people's mistakes, basically. Um, um, and that's one of the benefits of having a teacher. So I think it, it really depends on the objective of what you want to do with the language. Um, Japanese, like, there's not many people that can say, I learned Japanese to a fully native level, or I'm culturally native, fully native. So you really have to, like, choose what what do I want to do with this language? Do I want to be able to talk to my re my landlord about apartment issues? Do I want to, you know, talk to my employer? Like, what do I want to do? And then reverse engineer your studying from that. Because I think going back to your earlier question, okay, uh, what's a big mistake? A big mistake is not having a, a clear goal for the language. Um, so if you're just like, I just want to generally learn, then you don't know where you want to head. And then when you bump into the situations you really need the language for, you get frustrated because you're like, I didn't know how to say that. And it's like, well, you have to pick everything that you want to learn and, you know, prepare for that. So, so I think, yeah, in, in class instruction is definitely um, going to save you time in the long run in terms of um, knowing when and where to use certain language. Um, it's really interesting that you say that because um, uh, my one of my friends um, who was also on the podcast, his name's Martin, and I think it was one of the first podcasts I did. Um, he is also uh, fluent in Chinese and Japanese, and he said that the difference between the the people who like there are a, quite a lot of people can speak Chinese to um, a native level and also speak English to a native level. It's actually not that uncommon, you know, like especially people who grew up like Chinese Americans and stuff who grew up in the United States, but mm -hmm. Uh, Japanese tend to be a little bit more, it's a little bit more isolated of a country, right? So it's a, it's an island country. It's not as connected to the outside world and Japanese people, um, for whatever cultural reason, aren't as likely to go to other countries, learn English, um, you know, they, and, and what that means is that learning Japanese is actually much more useful for you if you want to get a, like a sort of high end, you know, business Japanese job, like there are probably less than a million people outside of Japan, like a, a million non-Japanese people who can speak Japanese to a fluent level, um, which is kind of insane when you think about it, because there are like four times as many uh, fluent speakers of English as there are native speakers of English, you know. So um, actually learning Japanese is, an, is much more, um, has much more business opportunities for you. Like if you went back to the United States, I'm sure you'd be have you'd be completely inundated with companies who want to work in Japan or want to you know, work with Japanese companies, especially the car manufacturers. And they would be reaching out to you like crazy going like, you know, you speak Japanese, we need someone who speaks Japanese. <laughs> yeah, totally. A hundred percent. I think, um, yeah, your, your value add is inversely proportional to your language ability. So what I mean by that is like the higher your Japanese ability, 
the less skill you need to have in terms of working for a Japanese company. Because as you say, like they want a counterpart in the uh, foreign country that can culturally interpret for them and tell them what's actually going on in the office. And also like, can you please share with your foreign colleagues what we're trying to tell people? <laughs> You know, because they can't come and communicate in a very direct uh, cultural manner, but you as the, you know, like kind of embedded counterpart, you, you can do that on their behalf. And so that's a huge asset. And if you can, if you can communicate with them fully in Japanese, um, yeah, there's tons of opportunity, um, especially now with the, the US dollar becoming so strong, they really have a focus towards um, uh, overseas expansion. So yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's um, an exciting time if you have uh, strong Japanese ability. Yeah. So if you could start again learning Japanese, like if you, you, I'm sure you made a lot of mistakes learning Japanese as I did. I made a lot of mistakes learning Japanese. Um, what would you do differently if you had to start again from the beginning? Yeah, I would pick one resource and be more consistent with it versus trying to uh speed run things with different resources the other thing i would do is i would integrate more uh input immersion so i would watch a lot more japanese media um like kids media uh children's television shows um stuff that's uh kind of don't want to say mindless but like easy to understand like variety television where they're just eating food and they're just commenting on the food you know what i mean because then you're gonna you're gonna get cadence and you're gonna get kind of cultural nuance of how to kind of like speak in a casual way. I, wanna, um, I wonder actually in that context though, one of the things I've noticed, and I'm, I'm sure you've noticed this if you've ever watched um, not only Japanese TV, but like uh, even YouTube, the way people speak is, has this kind of like presentation style of speech. Um, so even when they're talking to each other on TV, it doesn't really sound natural. It's the same thing with dramas as well, is that because obviously it's a drama like you it's kind of like the the culture of japanese drama is it's all it's really high drama the men always speak with a really sort of like you know grumbly like cool tone yeah. <laughs> that no one really uses in real life and um you know it's, it's kind of yeah. like the same thing as people thinking they can learn japanese from anime it's like actually no one speaks like that you know it's not that's not a normal way to speak so you know what yeah. what kind of media would you have to focus on to get the sort of natural rhythm rather than sounding like you just like jumped out of a TV show. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a lot worse things you could do than um, sounding like you jump out of a TV show. Mm. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's unavoidable to a certain extent. So I think one, one thing that is helpful is to find a kind of like language mentor or someone that you want to pattern yourself after um, and then basically shadow them or copy them. And then um, through kind of like brute force communication with real people, then you can kind of tone it down. So, but you, you, you have to start somewhere. But yeah, I agree that there are definitely negative habits that you would pick up if you input, yeah, like thousands of hours of um, uh, like variety television, or uh, like cooking shows or things like that. So I think one thing is like um, they have debate or panel, like um, evening debate or panel shows. Um, it's the vocabulary for that is a very high level vocabulary. 
So it wouldn't be useful for, I would say the majority of most learners, but that would probably be the closest to natural speech that I've seen on TV. Um, yeah. But yeah, and then you can try and pick dramas that are a bit more realistic or documentary shows um, from like NHK that are going to uh, businesses like um, there's a, there's an evening business program. I, I can't remember the name of it, uh, but they do profiles of companies basically. And when they interview people there, that's more of a natural kind of like speech pattern that you'd be able to pick up. Um, yeah, I think there's one uh, one that wasn't around when I came to Japan because I moved to Japan in about 2012. But um, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Terrace House. It's a, a show on Netflix, which is they put a bunch yeah, of people yeah. together in a house. It's kind of like big in the UK. We have Big Brother. I don't know if you have that in the United States, but um, it's yeah. Basically, they just film people interacting with each other and see what happens and see if they you know make friends or fall in love with each other or whatever. And um, uh, that I think is probably going to be the clo pretty close to natural uh, Japanese. And it's not scripted. That's the thing. It's like if it was scripted, it's going to sound a lot more unnatural. But but uh, because it's not scripted and it's mostly young people as well. And like some of the, you know, the people kind of maybe they're a little bit more interesting, like more attractive or whatever. So people might think, OK, well, I like you know, how this and, and this is something like you said, is find somebody like a language mentor, someone you go, oh, that guy's really cool. Everyone seems to like the way he talks and all the mm -hmm. girls like him or something. So I'm yeah. going to copy that guy and then I'll sound really cool in Japanese. It doesn't quite work out that way. But um, I think I got to a, a good stage with that by uh, listening to some uh, some some people who I would just copy the way they said things and copy that sort of um, I think the word for it is prosody is the the sort of cadence of the language where it's like in Japanese it has that kind of like up and down people think of Japanese as a really monotonal language because um, it doesn't have tones like Chinese and actually it's pretty it's pretty level in the way that you say things but it does have a kind of like a pace to it and uh, and that's called prosody and so if you if you pick that up from listening to people and if you pick that up from it will make you sound a lot more fluent and people will think that your japanese is much better even than it is like uh, people always said to me they thought my japanese was fluent when they first met me and then after a while they'd realize oh actually his vocabulary is not great but uh, you know so um yeah i would definitely recommend terrace house if you can pick that up on uh, i think it's on netflix mm. Yeah, yeah, I think I've seen a few. I think there, there's a guy on Reddit that that um, took the vocab and created like a master deck for the first. Uh, I think it was the, the season that they were in Kuruizawa. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the opening new doors or something, I think, or Aloha State, maybe one of the two when mm. they were in Hawaii or something. But yeah, yeah, I definitely agree that it's it's a natural language sample. Um, as far as vocabulary, it's very, yeah, it's manageable because <laughs> they're like, who do you like? You want to go ahead and, you know, you have repeating yeah. kind of like situations or things or like, um, but yeah, it's very nuanced in the, like how they communicate with one another, like the emotions. Right. That's also I'm sure you, I'm sure you can understand a lot of that in in context as well because they're talking about it in the situation of like being around each other and stuff like that I think that's another thing that people don't realize is when you're learning your natural language you're learning it from usually like the, the reason they call it mother tongue is because you're learning it from your mother really but um, it's often you're going to be corrected on things or you're going to be shown things in context all the time and like pointing to things all the time going like oh do you want this do you want this and like 
using those words, um, that's how people will pick it up really naturally. But if you're trying to like pick it up without any context, I think that's when it becomes more difficult that you're kind of trying to think like, oh, what's the word for this? What's the word for this? As opposed to it just jumping into your head as the word because you've seen it a hundred thousand times and you've been pointed, you know, it's been pointed out to you a lot more. So um, yeah, I think definitely learning in context is something that I would, I would highly recommend as well. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, going back to the question about what, what, what would I change as a, as a first time learner is like having a notebook with me at all times to kind of like write down um, and just take a lot more notes because, um, yeah, I think like you'll hear something, oh, I should say it that way. And then you let it slip. You, you don't keep it and, and review it enough. So just mm -hmm. having like in my day-to-day -day life um, doing that. And also I never formally took like an intensive um, training program at any sort of school when I was initially learning. So um, I think, you know, I, I kind of learned through osmosis and learning in free time when I wasn't at work. <laughs> um, and so I know that there's a lot of people that are in that same boat where, you know, they're, they're, the skill that they're working with is not their Japanese ability. Mm. And so it's really easy to just get English speaking friends and you get into an English speaking bubble when you're in Tokyo um, and you get demotivated there because you're like, oh, I'd love to learn Japanese, but I, I'm not being pulled towards it. And, you know, all mm. my friends speak English with me. And even your Japanese friends might be speaking English with you. Um, so, so yeah, so I would say, you know, having a more um, immersive environment and intentionally creating those opportunities to speak Japanese mm. on a consistent basis um, and, and being realistic about how much you actually need. That's the other thing, not wishful thinking of, oh, I'll do like two hours a week of like language exchange and, you know, you, you need to be you need to be radically honest with yourself and say like how much where do i want to go and what is it going to take to get there i think yeah that's definitely one of the things that i think i made that mistake at the beginning was i um I, when i was teaching at an inter uh not an international school i think i was teaching at a, a junior high school and i would have a, a two-hour class once a week and i'd study for it but then that was basically it <laughs> that was all i was doing if you have a, and now i know obviously you know as a as a teacher and uh, you know, I was, I was teaching English for nine years in Japan. Now I know it's like, okay, you can't learn a language with two hours a week. You're just like, you're, you're not even, you're sort of maintaining maybe, <laughs> you know, um, you can't, you can't get to a high level with just that. So yeah, definitely. I think people need to, uh, spend as much time as you can doing it and you can pick it up quickly. Like you said, it's not realistic to think that you'll learn Japanese to end one level in one year because it's just, a, it's just a more complicated language. It's just a difficult language to learn, but you can learn it pretty fast. Like I met a guy who, um, he lived in Saga prefecture in, uh, Western Japan, which is on the, the Island of Kyushu. And, um, he was pretty isolated from the sort of foreign community. And, uh, so he would just go out to bars all the time, like in his area and like chat to people. He had some guy friends out there who he would talk to, and then he would study a lot. And, um, his Japanese was pretty much fluent within, I would say 18 months. Like I was kind of shocked by how quick he learned Japanese to like a really fluent level that he could work in Japanese, no problem. Um, and yeah, that, I think, you know, it just depends on how much time you're willing to invest in it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's. 
a time time equation. So people always ask like, is Japanese really hard? And I would say it depends how you define hard, right? Mm -hmm. I would say it's really time intensive. So, you know, you've got three alphabets, you've got a character set, which is expansive, maybe 5,000 um, characters that you have to memorize um, mm. the meanings of just to be able to kind of like function on most day-to-day -day situations, like reading a newspaper um, and understanding kind of like internet uh, news articles. So you're, you're, you know, you can augment yourself with like on-screen readers, on-screen dictionaries so that you can 80-20 rule it and just focus on the, you know, 80% most common characters. And then that extra 20%, you can kind of leave to the wayside and augment with like a dictionary app or an on-screen reader or something like that. So it's, it's not really super difficult. It's just, you have to put yourself in the immersive environment. You have to spend the time because it's not a, a romance language. So you cannot pick things up through, through context because the, the etymology of the words aren't, aren't similar. So like, you know, with Spanish and, you know, Portuguese, for example, they're so close, you know, um, Italian and Spanish, so close in comparison to like English, Japanese. So, so yeah, it's super time intensive. Um, but yeah, you know, it's the, the journey is what you should be focused on. You should yeah. be enjoying every single step. You shouldn't be thinking, oh, I want to get fluent because that doesn't mean anything. That's like, you know, that's not clear. It's not a clear, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it's not a destination. It's, it's the journey, you know, it's cliche, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, how important is it to study kanji? Cause I know this, uh, to get the N1, you need to, um, you need to be able to at least understand, I would say it's the, the Joyo kanji, right? Like that's the, the sort of core 2000 or like whatever it is, 1984 kanji or something that, um, the sort of standard Japanese learner can understand or Japanese, Japanese person, once they finish school, they can understand all of those. Um, how important is it for you to study kanji? And is it something you'd do from the start if you were learning again? Or is it something that you should kind of forget for a little while once you're picking up a few words and then you know, learn it later on? Oh yeah, again, depends on what your objective is. If your objective is just like, I want to speed run JLPT, I want to pass N5, I want to go N4, N3, or maybe I want to skip like N3, then N1, then kanji is going to be the number one thing that you do. Because if you can read 90% of the kanji on the page and you understand the pronunciation of it, you can kind of interpolate the grammar rules through context a bit more because you, you understand all of the vocabulary in context. So if, if you have a base level understanding of grammar and you have a really strong kanji knowledge, then you can interpolate the, the more com complex grammar rules. But if, if you're just like drilling grammar all day um, and then you have a really good grasp of grammar, but your kanji is like lacking, then it's gonna be a limitation. But it depends on, you know, what where you want to focus with the language. But yeah, kanji um, acquisition is like how you learn Japanese. You absolutely have to <laughs> spend the time for it. There's no way around it. Like I'll see online, a lot of people ask me like on Quora and stuff, like, um, can I learn Japanese with only knowing like Romanized pronunciation? And it's like, 
Yeah, you could, <laughs> in theory, <laughs> but it would take way longer to do things that way than it would to actually just learn the kanji. So like you're creating this alternative solution that's actually much more painful than the you know intended thing you're trying to avoid. So I would say just, yeah, bite the bullet and, um, you know, like Heiseg, Heiseg, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but remembering the kanji is a popular system where they have the like story-based remembrances. So you'd have like, um, you know, a pictorial representation of the story, or you'd take and break down the kanji into its components and then make a story with the, with those components um, from the radicals. But like, um, yeah, I, I find whatever works for you, just focus on that. You know, mm -hmm. find something you enjoy doing and focus on that. And then, you know, get what you can. That's the other thing is like, just do whatever you can to get what you can. Don't worry about, am I doing this the right way? It's like, just do something. <laughs> just yeah. Keep doing it, you know? That's the most important, I would say. Uh, yeah, and I think that's a that's a really good point to uh, end this podcast on. So thank you so much, Sam. And um, what can we do if we want to find out more about uh, the work that you do or Koto Academy or um, if we wanted to reach out to you, um, how could we do that? Yeah, just go to kotoacademy.com. Um, we have a school location in Iribashi in Chiyodaku. We also have uh, online Japanese lessons. So if you want to do private or group lessons, we have that. We have a Yokohama school location, and we also have an Azubu-Juban school location. And hopefully, we will soon have a Shibuya location, and maybe wow. even a Kyoto location or a Paris location. So we have big plans for the next three years. Um, we're excited about them. And um, yeah, but yeah, kotoacademy.com, you can find more information. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sam, for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Look forward to, to hearing it when it comes out. And uh, yeah, um, you can, if, if anyone has any interest in reaching me, you can reach me at sam at kotoacademy.com. Sorry, I forgot to throw that in. If you enjoyed that episode and you like what we're doing with Inside Japan, please consider going to iTunes and giving us a five-star rating and sharing this episode with a friend who you think it might be useful for. As always, a huge thank you to jobsinjapan.com for sponsoring this podcast. And if you're looking for our other episodes, you can find them there and keep us in mind next time you're looking for work in Japan. Thanks so much for listening and see you again soon.